The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Everybody and welcome back to Cancelled Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. Uh, no nickname. No, no. You can. I guess you can call me Tommy or or Kevin. We're we're dealing with a show where I'm going to mix up all of the names of the characters because they have the most generic names. Yeah. Of any TV characters. And, and to a certain extent, some of them feel a little interchangeable. And uh, it's going to make this rather sprawling mob storyline a little difficult to, to convey. Uh, but that is the challenge in which we have, uh, uh, which we have taken upon ourselves. It aspires to be sprawling. It, well, it doesn't it quite has... sprawl. It kind of splats. <laughs> It, it, it congeals. <laughs> uh, we're talking today on our podcast where we talk about failed television series, a show we've had a lot of requests for over the years. And, um, well, we finally got around to it. Let's talk about the Black Donnellys. You remember the Donnellys, right? Four brothers who can only count on one thing. Hey, be careful. Each other. We're his brothers. He needs us. I don't make this right. The Black Donnellys, Monday, February 26th. Get an exclusive DVD of the pilot at netflix.com slash NBC. Now, if you heard that clip, first off, you may have heard the uh, rather interestingly dated get the first episode on Netflix DVD bit, which always which just makes me <laughs> chuckle. Uh, but you may think, based purely on listening to that audio clip, that this is a story about family. This is a story about brothers. This is going to be the, the, the new One Tree Hill. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you how, how annoyed I am every time a publicist or a preview will sell a film or a TV series as being about family. Uh, which is what they say when they actually don't know what the hell they've got. Most uh, it's, things are about family. I like mean, like a, unless they're pointedly a not member in it, then yeah, yeah it's about family. On, uh, on some level, yeah. Mm. Like I get some movies are pointedly not, but mm. if there's family in it, yeah, it's kind I, of about family in that. I remember first noticing that during the the press junkets for Batman and Robin back in the late nineties. <laughs> like, what is this new Batman film? Well, it's really it's about family, really. Batman forms a fan. Well, yeah, I guess because you have a lot of character. No. It's not about anything, that movie. Yeah. But uh, they said it's about family. The Black Donnellys is at least about four brothers. True. Uh, the Donnellys. Yep. They uh, are, uh, are, are Irish-American, and mm-hmm. uh, they r- own a bar called the Firecracker. Yeah. Uh, and it is about their uh, ambitions to enter the world of organized crime. Well, it's not so much their ambitions to enter the world of organized crime, so much as how they sort of accidentally, through they, sheer force of... Stupidity, yeah. yeah, stupidity, <laughs> violence, 
greed and, and complete lack of impulse control and, and just absolute luck they wind up becoming a, an actual force mm. within the organized crime community just because they're 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 hooligans they just uh, more or less, they just yeah. run around beating people up and extorting money and then all of a sudden everyone's like i guess they're powerful now I'm like when did that happen <laughs> shit um, a, a few vital stats. The Black Donnellys is an NBC series. It uh, uh, debuted and failed in uh, early 2007. Uh, it aired from February 26th through May 14th, 2007. It debuted right after a really noteworthy episode of Heroes, which for the first season... Oh, yeah, season, I remember Heroes. The first season of Heroes was a monster. People forget uh, this right now. talking about that yeah, show. If you're too young to remember like when it was like making its debut... Uh, Heroes, the first season's quite good. Uh, it was, you know, the story about how a whole bunch of people all around the world started getting superpowers at the same time. And, uh, and it was kind of like Nashville, but with Heroes. And also, they took a lot from the Watchmen. Uh, but, um, it was very, very popular. And it was really driving the zeitgeist for the first season, the way that shows like Lost or Twin Peaks did. And there was a mysterious character who had horn-rimmed glasses, and nobody knew what was up with him. And uh, there was a whole episode dedicated just to that guy. And it was like a must-see episode. Like, ah, secrets are going to get revealed. And to be to be fair, they were, actually. Kudos to Heroes. When they said they were going to reveal stuff, they did. So I remember watching that episode okay. like live, because yeah. I didn't have DVR yet. And I was watching the episode, and I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm glad I know all about that guy. Oh, there's a new show. I guess I'll watch this Black Dog. <sighs> <laughs> I watched the first episode uh, It did not grab me I know a lot of people are a big fan of this show And I'm going to try to figure out like Why that is I know that the Black Donnellys was Part of a wave I think of crime sagas That were hitting television There was well, no shortage this, of crime sagas before The Sopranos yeah. But I think The Sopranos Brought was, them into the 21st century I, I was going to say that The Sopranos kicked off the tr- like The imitators, the trends yeah. Uh, and it, this was also, and we've talked a lot about how the, the 2000s were uh, when TV was really transforming in a lot of ways from uh, independent episodes to these gigantic sprawling serialized narratives. Mm. Uh, cable had a lot more freedom to do that sort of thing with shows like Oz and the Sopranos and mm. Six Feet Under. Uh, network TV, it took them a little while to sort of catch up to that level of quality and interconnectedness. Yeah, there are, but, there are exceptions yeah, here and there, but yeah, it, it, it took yeah, a little while. So, uh, but this was... Uh, an early example of these gigantic super narratives that stretched over the course of a season. And I think a lot of people were just attracted to that. It was popular with audiences at the Mm. time. Uh, And it had not a huge amount of star power. The biggest star um, might be Kate Mulgrew. uh, At the time. Yeah. uh, Like she, she was the biggest get and she's, like she, she kind of slips in and out of the show, like almost surreptitiously. Like she doesn't play a major role like, she doesn't announce her presence. The show doesn't well, really sell well, her entrance. What's weird, Kate Mulgrew, by the way, if you, the name sounds familiar and you can't picture her, she was Captain Janeway in Star mm. Trek Voyager. Uh, she was also Billy Crystal's wife in Throw Mama from the Train, which mm. I I had seen as a kid, and then I watched it after Voyager. I'm like, hey! Mm. Like, one of those. Well, and she, she was also in, uh, she was in soap opera. She was sure. just a well, uh, no, a no. TV mainstay for an, a long, an, long time. An excellent actor, no yeah. doubt about it. But what's interesting about Kate Mulgrew's presence in The Black Donnellys, uh, she's not in the pilot, 
And then in like the first shot of episode two, she's there with the family as though she was there the whole time. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> no, you actually have to introduce Kate Mulgrew. Who is this woman? She plays the mother of the Black Donnellys. Um, uh, and the other uh, known, she wasn't a huge presence at the time, but she's now gone on to become a, a, a movie star and a great director in her own right, is mm-hmm. Olivia Wilde. Yeah. Who plays... Uh, co-owner of a local diner with her father uh, who has sort of like on again, off again, romantic relationships with one of the Donnellys and uh, her dramas are sort of like B plots in a lot of episodes because they don't really overlap in uh, two significant ways with a lot of the crime stuff. Yeah. She had already been in stuff like the OC and uh, movies like Alpha Dog and Turistas, uh, but it wasn't until she, she just after the Black Donnellys uh, that she got, I think, what was her big breakout role, uh, which was on House. That's right. Uh, which I, was my first like introduction to her, and she mm. was a real standout on that series. Uh, so this was, it's probably, like, if the Black Donnellys hadn't been canceled, she might not have ended up on House, mm. and then her career might not have shot off to where it is. Mm. So... The, uh, Bit of history. The the great irony is that the four main Black Donnellys are not known at all. None of them were big gets, mm-hmm. and uh, as and I don't I haven't seen any of them in anything since. Uh, that's 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 not uh, fair. Uh, uh, Jonathan Tucker, mm-hmm. I think, is a highly respected uh, uh, character actor. Uh, he was in the Virgin Suicides. Uh, he had mm-hmm. been in uh, before this uh, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was on that show Parenthood. Mm-hmm. He was on Justified. Um, he's, 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 he's on, on, he's on that show Snowfall. All right. Um, so he's, he's worked a lot in things yeah. I haven't seen. He was also in the pilot episode of American Gods in mm. a role where it's just like, he's a distractingly big character actor for a guy who has only one scene. And if you've read the book, you know, he's important later. Oh. So like they were setting him up for like a big thing. Right. And now that show's canceled. So that'll never uh, come mm. together. Um, but he's a good actor and that he's another one who I think was like sort of being set up for greatness, but it just never quite hit like movie star mm. level with him, which is unfortunate because I think he's really talented actually. Um, but uh, let's run through the cat, the main cast real fast. Uh, so well, there's Tom, Tommy is sort of the main character. Yeah, he's played by Jonathan Tucker. Mm. Tommy is, I believe he's the eldest son of the black Donnelly's. Uh, and he's the one who is the most clear headed, mm. Uh, he's trying to keep his brothers out of trouble. Their brothers are varying degrees of oblivious to dangerously violent and irresponsible. And so keeping track of them is a hard thing to do. But at the beginning of the series, he's actually trying to get his life together. He's going to art school. He's trying to keep his head, uh, his, his, his nose clean. Uh, and then the events of the pilot basically ruined that for him because he, he is um, he goes through the uh, Michael Corleone arc like yeah. in the pilot episode. Yeah, uh, and he's he's trying to stay out of crime, but his uh, no good Nick brothers are all. Yeah. They really want to drag him down, and there's a lot of incident in the pilot yeah. that sets up all of the action for the rest of the series. Yeah. A real, in a nutshell, what it boils down to is uh, his the second youngest Donnelly brother, Kevin, played by Billy Lush, uh, is a gambler, and he never wins, and he is in really deep and owes a lot of money, uh, and their solution is to kidnap the bookie. Which doesn't go great. Um, They accidentally kill the bookie. That guy dies badly. (laughs) Um, And uh, now it's up to uh, Tommy, who's desperately trying to keep this thing together, uh, and uh, their brother Jimmy, 
uh, who... It's like the, the, the hothead of the group. Jimmy is... And you look at his performance, especially later in the series. Jimmy's played by an actor named Tom Geary. Um, he seems to be going for Robert De Niro in Mean Streets. This early, very energetic, mm. very angry at the world, um, you know, sort of rebellious guy who is has a certain magnetism, but is undeniably dangerous. I don't really get the magnetism from Jimmy. I think he's just the kind of guy where you're just like, we should just... He, he seems like he's setting himself up to be Fredo and the Godfather. Where it's like, okay, you clearly want to be involved, but every single thing you touch, you destroy. And my prediction is, had the series gone on, no. eventually Tommy would have had to kill him. Oh, I, I, not, uh, not... Sonny, not Fredo. No, Fredo. Sonny is Sonny is James Caan. James yeah. Caan dies, but James Caan is just shot at a at a uh, uh, mm. uh, at No, yeah. Fredo's the one who like betrays the family. Fredo's no, the one I, who's trying I, I so saw, hard to be a part of it. I saw Jimmy as, as Sonny as okay. the sort of hothead who who's like really trying to be involved in something a lot more sophisticated that he doesn't really understand mm. and just keeps on failing, but somehow he's lucky enough to get out of trouble, like just barely every time. Oh, well, I can see that too. But that, that's yeah. the, the God, we're going to make a lot of Godfather parallels. I'm sure we are. Yeah. And then uh, the youngest brother is uh, Sean uh, played by Michael Stahl, David, who and you may remember from Cloverfield. And he's, uh, he's the Zeppo of the group. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's in the first episode because of all of the shit. That Jimmy, and I already forgot, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin's so forgettable, I'm sorry. Jimmy, Kevin, Sean, and Tommy. Yeah, Jimmy and like, Kevin getting so much they trouble. They name one like Aloysius or something. Jimmy and John, Xerxes. Jimmy and Kevin get in so much trouble that the whole family is under fire. Uh, and uh, Sean gets the shit kicked out of him. He ends up in like a coma. Like really, really bad. And he was like the pretty one. And, like, when he gets out of the coma, he's, like, ashamed of his face because he was, like, the handsome one, like, the guy who got all the girls. And the guy was actually pretty straight-laced and not really a problem. Mm. And he just kept getting dragged into these horrible shenanigans. And, um, and he's none too bright, so he just sort of goes along with it. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> he's my favorite character, not because he's interesting, but because I don't hate him. <laughs> like, he doesn't do anything, like, really terrible. Uh, there's no no uh, attempt to make these characters likable, and I think that was sort of the the ammo of the show. They mm-hmm. wanted to make a show about uh, scumbags and criminals, yeah, people who are you know, and and this was another trend at the time. Characters like Dexter or mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Breaking Bad or yeah. The Sopranos. Well, those, they were all those are pronouncedly dark, and yeah, I think this, like, this is supposed to have like a like a t- early twenties, you know, dudes making mistakes, kind of energetic. Charm to their wickedness a, a little bit, like, but they're definitely supposed to be enjoy watching. But them. there, there are like scumbags. There's you know drug addiction and murder, and the, yeah. you know these guys aren't good guys. They do horrible things, and they're not apologetic about it. And I yeah. think that was supposed to be part of the thrill. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know where this lines up with a show like Breaking Bad or Dexter, but they're about the same time. This is 2007. Yeah, but Breaking Bad and Dexter are mm. about people who are... First of all, they're about individuals. There's an ensemble mm. cast, but there's definitely one focal point. And Dexter, mm. it's a serial killer. And uh, Breaking okay. Bad, it's like... Well, but, I'm just, but you I'm, understand what I mean, right? I do. I just okay. want to say where I think the delineation is. Right. Where in that one, those are stories about people who are already like... Mm. In Dexter's case, he's already doomed. He's his His... Darkness is a part of him. Mm. Uh, and Breaking Bad, it's about someone's absolute fall from grace. And mm. here, this seems like just one of those, you know, uh, organized crime stories where a bunch of people just 
fall into all of these patterns and it becomes this sort of a familial tragedy in a very mm. Scorsese Coppola sort of way. Yeah. yeah. Um, except Irish. Um, although Scorsese did work with the Irish, the departed one best picture. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of frustrating. I was thinking of the departed. So every time they would like go out into the street, I, I like had to remind myself that this didn't take place in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> it takes place in New York and it's uh it's not very New York, though. Like they don't, no. they don't try to capture sort of the essence of New York. There, so it could be Boston. It could be anywhere. Well, really. I think I think it was shot in Canada, which wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, also filling out the cast, as we said, Olivia Wilde uh, plays Jenny, who grew up with them. Uh, her father has a diner, which is across the street from the Firecracker Bar where that the boys own, and they wanted in like a gambling session. Um, and uh, Tommy's been in love with her since forever. Jimmy's been in love with her since forever, although that doesn't come up too often. Uh, but the problem is, is that for a variety of shitty reasons, they never got together. She ended up marrying another guy. That guy ended up getting involved in organized crime. And there's a bit, and I kind of wish they'd explored this a bit more because there's a very almost unique tragedy to this. Mm-hmm. Everyone in town knows that her husband got murdered for getting involved in shit he shouldn't have gotten involved with, mm-hmm. except her. <laughs> and they won't tell her because they don't want to break her heart. Mm. Problem is, is that she still keeps thinking he's going to come home someday. Like she's still married. She's very Catholic. So even though technically she's a widow and she could move on with her life, she feels like she can't. So early in this series, when she's when like sparks start flying with Tommy again and they sleep with each other, it kind of rips her apart inside. That's actually a more interesting plot than a lot of this, you know, murder that's happening elsewhere. But in the pilot episode, they get involved with this whole thing with this bookie who gets kidnapped and then he gets killed so they can't repro- so they can't produce him and make everything right again. And now at the end of the episode, Sean is in the hospital and Tommy is told Jimmy is a fuck up. And the Irish mafia says we need to get Jimmy to go to the Italians whose bookie you kidnapped and killed even though I don't know that. Um and uh, he's got to, he's going to get the shit kicked out of him. Mm-hmm. And Tommy knows that what that means is they're going to kill him. And he doesn't want his brother to die. Mm-hmm. So he walks into this tavern with the local leader of the Italian mob and the local leader of the Irish mob, who he's known for, for decades as a friend of the family. And he kills them both. And that's the end of the pilot. Oh, shit. That's actually mm-hmm. going to be a problem, isn't it? And, uh, okay, you got story. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of those pilots where maybe they didn't think that out and they just sort of like, um, uh, to borrow a term from a video game critic I watch a lot of, uh, a fuck-up cascade. Mm. Uh, there's a phenomenon he, uh, this critic talks about in video games where if, uh, like, you're stealthing through a certain section, you make one small mistake and that sort of alerts every bad guy in the video game and you're yeah. just dead. Instantly. Yeah, there was, like, like one path to victory mm. in which you didn't like and interact with anybody and the, mm. the coast is clear. And if one guy knows you and go, Hey, yeah, then all of a sudden every bad guy in the game is yeah, jumping so, on you and there's no so you way make, to get you out. make one tiny mistake and it's essentially game over. Uh, yeah. And so I feel like that's the, the approach with the black Donnelly's. And that's the kind of storyline uh, where you can imagine that being almost this like Coen brothers thing where mm-hmm. all of a sudden a couple of dopey guys who were just doing their best do something really horrifying. And now they're completely in over their heads and they're just trying to find a way to get out of it. And I can but, imagine, 
imagine that working yeah. for 90 minutes if this was the inciting incident. Or if the characters were actually trying to get out of it. But yeah. this is a story about how they kind of roll with it. Yeah. And they try to use their mob connections uh, that they're now just developing. Uh, and they, uh, a big story is about how they try to do the, the mob thing where they go into people's businesses and shake them down for protection money. Yeah. And they take over somebody else's roots and they end up killing that guy. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, they're actively trying to take over all organized crime in this yeah. neighborhood. So the first couple of episodes are about the fallout from this. And now, okay, now there's a power vacuum. Uh, and uh, the uh, Italian mob, uh, mob is now run uh, by a guy named uh, Doki. Played by Peter Green, uh, who I will always remember as the bad guy from The Mask. That's kind of the big role uh, he's yeah. in. But he's a good, reliable character. I always he's, like him. He's also... Um, uh, he was in Pulp Fiction as well. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, he he was, was the guy who ran the uh, antique the, store. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, anyway, good actor. I'm always a fan of Peter Green. So he comes in, and it turns out that the head of the Irish... Mob that Tommy killed was his brother, so now he's wandering around town, chopping off people's toes, trying to find out who killed his brother. And meanwhile, he's interacting constantly with Tommy, who's like, "Hey, hey, wasn't me." Um, and uh, so that's going on. We have uh, a young upstart or youngish upstart in the Italian mob uh, named Nikki, played by Kirk Acevedo, uh, who is also trying to manipulate the Donnellys into getting what he wants, which is to race through the ranks of hmm. uh, race through the ranks of the Italian mob. Uh, the first couple of episodes are about the Black Donnellys trying to basically cover up the murder, trying to get away with all of this, and then eventually it just sort of settles down. Uh, problems keep arising where Tommy is like, hey, uh, Kirk Acevedo, Nikki is like, okay, so uh, you know the whole thing with the bookie? Yeah, uh, well, until he gets back, he he owes us money, like, every week. That's his job, and um, if he doesn't get back, we don't get that money. So until he comes back, he's dead in a ditch somewhere. Until he comes back, you will pay me $2,500 a week. There's a thing in crime stories... That always baffles me, which is that these... Well, I I have something too, but what's yours? Well, the one I want to talk about right now, this isn't unique to the Black Donnellys. It's like all Mm. crime stories. And maybe this is just a different type of world and community and economic system than I am used to. But everyone is always really poor and working class, and everyone always has shit tons of money. It's always like, hey, you owe your bookie $5,000. All I can raise is $2,500. I couldn't tell you the last time I had (laughs) $2,500. Like, I I could not hustle uh, with, like, all of my resources and all of the people I know and just sort of scrounge up $2500. Like I could take pinch. I could take my entire DVD collection of which I am rather proud mm. and sell it at Amoeba Records and maybe get a few hundred for yeah, it. Yeah, maybe get like I I'd, I'd, I'd say I'd say you'd get you're pushing 500. Maybe in, in if, one, be, if like if it's if, one chunk, yeah. If they're feeling generous, like that's mm. like but like that's it. Those are all my liquid assets. Like yeah, I got so, nothing. So like I, I don't understand really where people yeah, get all yeah. this money from. They're all poor and they all have all this money. Yeah, they like li- I put five thousand dollars on the ponies. Where did you get the five thousand like dollars? You I, live in a studio apartment. I lost all this money, but you you had it at some point, right? It's like I, I how do you have it a, to gamble? There's going to be a understand. plot point later in the show where um it's uh, Zeppo uh, gets his own car, and yeah. the joke is that it's this like. It has over 200,000 miles. It's this, like, rust bucket car, but he's really proud of it because he's never had one before. Right. Uh, 
but they're still like handing wads of like twenty thousand dollars in cash to one another. It's like, is this like six months of salary for you? What does that money mean yeah, in that world? It's, money is just this weird blob of mm-hmm. of green that people have in their pockets, and it's like. I seriously, I don't understand like financially what stakes are in this universe. Uh, it's like, a- oh, twenty five hundred dollars a week. How am I going to raise that, dude? You fucking like. There's an episode in this where they manage to like bribe, steal, and cajole their way through all of New York bureaucracy over the course of a day. Mm. I don't think it's hard for you to get twenty five hundred dollars anymore. <laughs> I just don't. There- it seems like nothing to you. It's the world to me. It seems like nothing to you. That's and and yeah, if, if they were living in luxury, like in the movie Scarface, like they had a mansion yeah. or they had you know, dozens of cars, I would say fine. That then yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. What I have always been baffled by in these sort of mob dramas, especially the street level mob dramas, is why would you want to go into organized crime when you could be killed? And it seems like so much goddamn work. Yeah. It's like after all of this hustling and you're on call 24 hours a day and you have to murder people and you're constantly in danger. And at the end of the day, it's like you're just sort of making minimum wage. Right. When it all evens out. Well, it's 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 all this this pride is now involved in it. Mm -hmm. And all of this. uh, It's like you wronged me. So I'm going to murder you. It's like, well. Or you could just suffer those same indignities at a minimum wage job and kind of come out the same. And then not and, die. And no one would be killed. Then, well, so I mean, there's an advantage It's here. important to remember that a lot of these types of worlds, and they exist in real life, mm-hmm. uh, people fall into them because it's what they grow up with a lot of the time. It's their neighbors. It's their family. So this pattern of behavior, this lifestyle isn't that weird. So it's not something to aspire to. They're just already there yeah. a lot of the time. I, I'm not speaking for everybody, but you know, I, well, I, 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 underst- I do know people and I've read a lot. And, I, I understand um, that. And I've seen a lot of crime dramas about living in a crime riddled place and how it's just sort of yeah. the natural place where you go. I talked recently about city of God yeah. and that's an excellent example of that. How, well, when you're a boy, that's kind of the only option you have. Well, and I think the whole, the whole setup for this, mm. for the show is that there's, Two brothers who are idiots who fall into it because they don't think about consequences. Mm. And there's one brother who's genuinely smart who is actively trying not to do this shit, but keeps getting roped into it because otherwise his brothers would die and he's the only one smart enough to prevent that for them. And that's supposed to be the tragedy. This person's supposed to be... It's, it's the Michael Corleone thing. Mm. Oh, he was, he was so smart. He was so bright. He was being like groomed to be the member of the family who was not involved in organized crime. But because of circumstances outside of his control, it was his responsibility to set up and it changed his entire path. Um, but you bring up an interesting point, which is that the world of organized crime, and as we see it in movies, I don't have a lot of connections to it, it's it's a really nerve-wracking lifestyle. And there's something you almost never see in a mob movie. Someone with, like, anxiety. I don't mean just, yeah, like, someone who has anxiety. It's like someone who is, like, clinically has anxiety. Someone yeah, who's, like, it, constantly, like, worried well, and nervous about things. Because yeah, it's not a lifestyle that you can't... You have to be able to steal a car and then not go, Oh, God, what if I get caught for stealing that car? No, you have to go about your day. And I've never understood. This is why I can never be a criminal. I could not <laughs> go about my day. I do one crime, and I'm like, "Oh my god, my life is ruined. I'm never gonna." Ah, I could never do uh, it. Uh, it. It's not so much the anxiety. I mean, anxiety is part of it, but you know, 
these people are uh, victims of a rash of mental illnesses and addictions that mm. uh, they don't have the wherewithal to address. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of the crime genre. Uh, yeah. In the fact, violent impulses, yeah, the all, gambling all, problems, all these vol- substance abuse. Jimmy's addicted yeah, all, all to all a variety these, of yeah, drugs. All these uh, addictions and vices and problems and you know, mental illness uh, issues are all things that. Uh, People fall into a life of crime. Uh, I, they sort of they kind of go hand in hand because all of these sociopathic tendencies that are not being addressed mm. kind of are welcome in a world world of crime. It's yeah. like if if you're a sociopath, you make a great organized criminal because you don't feel any guilt. You just steal a car and you drive off. And if a cop stops you, you just say, "Ah, nope, you didn't see me." Or hey, here's some money. I'll just bribe you. Yeah, you know, you just have, they have that sort of confidence in this very real notion that the rules don't apply to them. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, the, and uh, so yeah. I think a big part of of organized crime movies is that people uh, aren't in a place where they can address their problems, I, so they have to turn to crime because that's kind of their only option. I feel like maybe the greatest line of dialogue I've ever heard about organized crime was yeah. actually not technically in the in a mob movie. I was in the movie Sneakers. Mm. Where Ben Kingsley reveals that, you know, because he's like the smart computer hacker and he was in jail, he ended up befriending people in the mafia. Mm. And that was how he was able to stay alive by being like their smart computer accountant guy. And Robert Redford goes... Show a good family, man. Yeah, Robert Redford says, really? Organized crime? And Ben Kingsley Mm. says, and what a great line. Don't kid yourself. They're They're not not that that organized. organized. (laughs) And that's what I feel it boils down to is that this is not... Like, uh, this is not smart business. This is, mm. like, effective business, maybe, but it's not like we came up with a great entrepreneurial model and we presented it to the bank. And, like, <laughs> no, this is something that just sort of happens. Mm. And so over the course of the series, uh, the Black Donnellys go from basically one harebrained scheme to another. They find the about halfway through the series, the boogie's been dead for a while, and all of a sudden his phone rings in the basement, which, what a great battery on that phone. That's been at least a week. And this is a 2007 flip <laughs> yeah, phone. Like, come on. Like, that's <laughs> that's what I don't buy well, here. But Actually, that's, those those flip phones had better battery life than smartphones. Still, they, they used a lot less still, electricity. Still been a week. Still been a week. It's still right. plausible. But anyway, I'll let it go. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the phone rings. And all of a sudden, they realize, oh, the bookie left his phone here. And then they realize that the bookie kept all of their bookkeeping information on their phone. So they decide to take over the book, yeah, the bookies. They go business. They go to everyone on the phone who owes money and says, oh, well, this person lost money on a bet. All we got to do is collect and say we we come from like this this uh, what was it, Louis? Forget the name, Tony. Tony. Who, whoever was the original bookie was the guy who died. Oh, uh, bookie. His name we'll, is bookie. We'll call him bookie. Uh, so they go to everyone who lost money, and Jimmy's just like, hey, we came here to collect. And when people say, I don't know you, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to give you the money, he gets indignant. He's like, that guy's not going to give me my money. And every once in a while people said, you know, it's not actually yours, right? And he's <laughs> like, that's the principle of the thing. The, the principle like, is you're trying to steal it. Yeah, like they owe money, but not to you. Like, I don't understand. So he gets, like, really indignant and weird about it. And, like, he just sort of, all of a sudden, now he is a bookie. Like, one episode later, he just, they talk to, like, one guy who knows how to do math. And now they're bookies. Uh, They need help doing bookie stuff, so they hire Kenneth Lonergan. Great actor. I love Kenneth Lonergan, uh, who, um, there's a parallel universe where he and Mark Ruffalo have inverted careers. uh, (laughs) They kind of fulfill very similar roles. uh, Uh, He was also in the, The Departed. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the. I really, really love Kenneth Lonergan. Yeah. I like him in this because he seems a little bit um, 
like overwhelmed. He's kind of like a pathetic figure. I like the way he plays his his character. Yeah, like he knows what he's doing, but he also knows he is not the protagonist of his own story. Yeah, he's 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 yeah. sort of resigned himself to helping out other people who are more ambitious. Uh, so when he actually displays some wherewithal, when he uh, decides he is in love. Uh, things go poorly for him <laughs> when he tries to be a protagonist. Things yeah. fail for him, and I do, I do like that about the character. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, um, so, and, uh, uh, oh, yeah. and, and indeed, he starts coming on to Jimmy's Jimmy's, Jimmy's girlfriend. Yeah, who is uh, who is uh, who is also a drug addict. Who's a, yeah, who's a drug addict, and yeah, they and they start having sort of a, a flirtation, uh, which leads to very bad things for Kenneth Larkin. <laughs> It's not Kenneth Lonergan, no. Or, Kenneth Lonergan, not Kenneth Lonergan. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, but you, you he's in Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Lonergan wrote and directed the, director, the films um, You Can Count on Me and Manchester by the Sea. Oh my gosh, I, I totally... Uh, Kevin Corrigan. Corrigan. <laughs> Lonergan Corrigan. You can see where I did. Why I did. Yeah, Kevin Corrigan. That's Kevin, what it was. Thank Kevin you. That was, Corrigan. I knew that was wrong, and I couldn't I couldn't correct you yet, because I, did, I needed to uh, have the name in front of me. Apologies for nuts. that. I, yeah. I, I, Kevin Corrigan is the actor. Wire got crossed. Kevin Corrigan Corrigan, not Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, I've mixed up Upton Sinclair and John Updike before, so. Yeah. Oh, well, in that case. Just because they have Up in their name. Yeah. So, sorry. Kevin Corrigan is the name of the actor, and I do like Kevin Corrigan. I like, uh, 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 you go to Kenneth, Kevin Corrigan's like IMDb page, mm. uh, and it has trademarks. Sometimes actors have trademarks, things that they do a lot. Okay. Uh, and, uh, for example, uh, plays gangsters slash criminals. True. Yeah, he's he's done uh, it several times. Razor sharp looks. <laughs> uh, he's striking. Yeah, receding hairline. I don't know if that's a trademark or if that's just his hair. It's but just okay. the way his hair looks. You can put a uh, wig on him. Here's and they go into more detail. Frequently plays criminals. Colon. Drug dealer. Drug addict. Kidnapper. Drunk. Bank robber. <laughs> drunk. It's not, I, I, not necessarily a criminal if you're drunk. I, I guess he's got a type. Uh, but I mean, you know. I know it's just funny. He is quite a good actor, though, good even actor. if he does play similar roles. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but so, yeah, he, yeah, he, he ends up getting swept into their bullshit, and yeah. it doesn't end well for him at all. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Tommy, I'm, Tommy's a frustrating character because he's, like, the leader, and part, you'd think he would, like, sort of step into the crime stuff, take care of a single crisis, and then try to step back. Yeah, and then but try to in, resume a normal exactly, life. Exactly. It's inconsistent. It, it yeah. is inconsistent. Like, he... he so he does have sort of a normal life. He tries to instigate an affair with Olivia Wilde, but it like she breaks it off really early in the series. Mm-hmm. He ends up uh, falling in with a rich married woman who has always had the hots for him. Mm. Well, it's and, it's, uh, it's the widow of the guy he killed. Oh, that's right. And uh, yeah, so now so he's she, got this, uh, all this guilt, and now he's like hanging out with the dudes. Like son and like mm. helping like the dude's widow like go the, through his things and then they start having sex yeah, and, and, it's, and, it's, and then it he has to steal like... from her house for Doki because mm. Doki is like in this weird power grab right now where he wants to control his family and um, there's a funny bit where he has to like steal a box mm. from this house. And then he Doki finds out he's like hanging out with like the kid and like teaching him art because uh, uh, Tommy was going to art school, and Doki just says, "I do not want my nephew hanging out with someone who would steal from that house." And Tommy's like, "You asked me to do that. We will not have that conversation." <laughs> and I like that. Oh, that was so, a good so illogical. Um, yeah. But if Tommy had been in this position where he kept on trying to uh, retreat to a normal life. Or, or establish sort of a normal life, then 
his role in the Black Donnellys would have been a lot clearer. Yeah. But as it is, when he steps in to do the crime stuff, a, it takes a lot of the, the show. Yeah. He, it's like two full episodes are devoted to him cleaning up his brother's mess and maybe a third of the next one to him trying to achieve a normal life. Yeah, like he uh, like ends up like doing has, an internship for an artist. Yeah, played by William Sadler in one yeah. episode. And then he just has to leave because his brothers are shits. That's yeah. it. And yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay. I was hoping William Sadler would be like a regular on the show and be yeah. like sort of representative of his achievements yeah. of, of being kind of a, a non-criminal. Well, well, like, he has to leave for uh, all this criminal shit, and William Sadler's yeah. like, well, if that's more important than you than art, you'll never be an artist. And I wanted him to come back and just say, my my brothers were killing a guy with grenades? And then I want William Sadler to go, that's really interesting. Stick around. Tell me stories. Like, I kind of wanted them <laughs> to have, like, that relationship. Like, like, yeah, a confidant all of yeah, a sudden. That would yeah. that, that would have been nice, too. Could have been interesting. You know, that's the um, way to handle it. Should have, should have started with that, but yeah, because Maybe. because Tommy spends so little time actually trying to express you know a life outside of the organized crime world, he seems more enthused about the organized crime world. So he's not he he's not a conflicted character as much as the show no. would have us believe. What he is trying to do is he's trying to be a part of organized crime while being moral. Like, he's getting involved in all of that shit. Well, where, like, when he wants, because he well, kind of vacillates. Like, he will protect his, he will do anything immoral to protect his family. But if someone from the neighborhood asks him for help, like, there's an there's a old lady who uh, says, hey, there's some drug dealers that are hanging out in the lobby of my apartment, and mm. I, they, they won't leave, the cops won't do anything about it, can you do something about it? And he ends up politely asking them to leave that doesn't work and so he brings his brothers with some baseball bats and they beat the shit out of these guys and then they come back to the bar and they're feeling really good about themselves like oh good we helped this old lady and that's where jimmy who's again has been a drug addict this whole time is like that old lady is a drug dealer she sold me my first fix all she did was trick you into eliminating the competition and tommy's like well fuck that lady and they run in. they don't kill her thank goodness i think that would have been a step too far but they steal the front door to her apartment <laughs> Which is a, admittedly a pretty good gag. Mm. Um, so he's like trying to help people in the neighborhood, but he's really bad at it, and he ends up doing as much harm as good mm. a lot of the time. Um, we didn't mention the framing device for this show, which is very oh, pronounced. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is a guy named Joey Ice Cream. Oh God, uh, I uh... okay. I'm gonna admit it. I I actually kind of love Joey Ice Cream. <laughs> I, and I and I <laughs> and I have to apologize for that because he's a really obnoxious character. Yes, yes. And the conceit of the entire show is that the what everything we witness is a story being told by Joey Ice Cream, who is a liar. Yeah, Joey Ice so Cream was was like, a, was like tangentially connected to these events, uh, and now at some point in the future, he is in prison, and he is telling the story of everything that happened. To the Donnelly brothers, to any lawyer that will listen, and he goes through like five of them. Any cop who will listen, and they never tells them what they actually want to hear. Some, some other, you know, like a yeah. prison guard, just whoever's listening, yeah. is going to tell them a story. And in almost every single episode, someone points out that there is a logical inconsistency, or he is telling the story of something that happened when he wasn't in the room, mm. and then he'll say something like, "Oh yeah, I was there too. I forgot yeah. about it." And, and then we'll back, and he'll be in the room. Like and everyone's like, like hey, "Oh guys. hey Joey, hey guys, oh hey Joey." <laughs> Which is admittedly kind of funny yeah. the first couple of times they do it. One well, of the it, early... It, what it does is it gives yeah. the entire series uh, this weird sort of Adventures of Pete and Pete vibe. I wish it weird. had that, though. Uh, like, if it were a little kookier, I wish if it had that, it would have been, been great. But it does give a, a lot of 
a lot of the show anyway, at least the shows where Joey Ice Cream, the scenes where Joe, Joey Ice Cream is involved, this fantasy element, that yeah. this is this sort of fantastical thing that's just being made up by some guy who likes crime stories. Yeah, it's got this sort of usual suspects kind of vibe to it. And I wish it had dealt, I wish that had been more of the premise, because I feel mm-hmm. like Joey Ice Cream is in every episode. He does the previously on the Black Donnelly segment every time. And uh, sometimes he's funny, sometimes he contributes nothing at all to the episode. Uh, but he's almost always talking about shit he shouldn't be able to know, like what's mm. going on inside Tommy's head. And I'm just, I never see you being Tommy's confidant. Mm. So I don't know why you would know this. Why are you like Mako in the, the Conan movies? Like, why are you his chronicler? Like, I don't really see it. Um, and I wish it had had more of, cause he's clearly an unreliable narrator. I wish it had just completely embraced it. Yeah. That we're just hearing this story of organized crime through the perspective of a liar who will make up details and we never know what to truly believe. And this is all this kind of myth building, this like local myth building, which apparently was part of the influence of the show was these local stories of real life Irish mobsters. Mm. And I think if it had embraced that and been more connected to that and allowed the show to be a little wittier, a little bit more funny, just maybe play, playful at all. Playful might yeah. be the best way I'm going with this because like, I mean, you can have your big moments, you can have your great tragedy, but just like there's, an, I feel like there's, there's always this little distance. Like we, it's like Princess Bride, where you can take that story seriously, but in your heart of hearts, you know that Peter Falk is just telling this story to the kid from The Wonder Years. Fred Savage. Fred Savage. Okay, I almost said John Savage. I knew that no, was wrong. Fred, Fred Savage. Okay. Um, but you know it's a story being told, and as a result, you can like get away with stuff you might not otherwise have been able to. Apparently, what in the early drafts of this show, the title wasn't The Black Donnellys. It was The Truth According to Joey Ice Cream, which is a more colorful title, but try putting that on a billboard and see how, see how well uh, that, that, hits, that hits the mainstream. <laughs> I know why they changed it. I know why they changed it, is my point. The 100 Lives of Joey Ice Cream. Oh, God. I wish. <laughs> I wish. So, yeah, jo- Joey Ice Cream is the narrator and uh, ostensibly the stor- the one who's making up all of these stories. Um, yeah. But, yeah, if there had been some uh, playfulness with that meta-narrative quality, mm. it would have been a lot more fun. Yeah. Because every once in a while they'll do it, and I'm just like, you know, you haven't done that in like three episodes. Like, you know, make it part of the narrative. Make it well, part of it. And then know? when these sort of bland, nondescript characters start doing really serious things, and we're supposed to get like down in the dirt with them, and clearly it's sweeps week, uh, it's, uh, it's not interesting anymore. It's not interesting unless there is this sort of weird wit to it, or this kind of ironic approach, or a little bit of detachment from a lot of story beats that are actually really cliched. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in a, a B plot that takes a couple of episodes, uh, Olivia Wilde's character, oh, she yeah. uh, she sort of to get over both her husband and Tommy has an affair with another guy played by James played Badge Dale from Iron Man Three, and uh, she kind of makes it clear to him this was actually just an, another fling I needed it for like my mental health yeah but he doesn't take that very well and kind of starts stalking her yeah and and insisting that they be together and then starts like really threatening her after a while and she gets yeah. really scared which is a, mm. which is I mean it's, it's a dark storyline obviously and it's sadly something that people mm. have, have experienced and it's it, and it's fair I think to include it in almost any show because this kind of really frightening creepy interaction uh 
with really shitty toxic men, uh, that can happen just randomly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I kind of appreciate that. But it's also, unfortunately, because the rest of the show is so interwoven, that subplot feels like it's off in its own separate universe. Well, a, a lot of the Olivia Wilde stuff does because yeah. uh, a big uh, drama for her is that her father, who's rel- relatively young, he's like in his early 60s, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, young, but like, yeah, he's not like, like he's, old, he's, old. He's, he's not like in his 90s. He's not, yeah. uh, not infirm, but he is starting to become a little senile. He has early onset Alzheimer's, it's eventually explained. Yeah. And that's become a problem for the diner because he takes the take for the day that mm. he's supposed to be putting in the bank and for the last uh, X number of I think uh, six weeks deposits yeah. has been leaving it in a mailbox. Yeah. The, they're, instead of putting it in the drop box yeah. for the bank, he's been leaving it in the mailbox across the street. Yeah. And now and, all and of their just, bills are overdue and they're fucked. And, and uh, she tries to shake down the mailman who is clearly taking money out of the mailbox and not telling anybody, but uh, that that's sort of a dead end. So she's in financial dire straits and it's only, after that whole story and, you know, the father goes to the hospital, after that story has been percolating for a while, that she starts turning to Tommy for some crime money so she can yeah. pay off all of her bills yeah. and keep she, the diner afloat. They need to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doki is trying to take advantage of the situation uh, by buying up half the diner, which mm-hmm. if you've seen Goodfellas, you'll know that, like, once the mafia, like, gets that invested in any business, they start... It's, it's essentially theirs. It's essentially theirs. They will manipulate it in such a way to their advantage and then the business can't hold anymore and then they end up taking the whole damn yeah. thing. And which, of course, is all part of, like, this big mysterious land deal you know like in movies well when, in, like people and in have... the last two episodes they finally reveal yeah. this like this has actually been the plot the whole time but it feels like yeah. they just made it up it's actually the plot to like batteries not included like where it's like oh we've bought up every building in the neighborhood except for this diner yeah and then we just have to get this diner like it almost okay. makes you wonder if like somehow doki had like drugged her dad into being forgetful and so like it was all part of a scheme because otherwise it's just a great coincidence for doki but like yeah so it's all about mm. this big land grab and again they probably it's one of those it's things all where these like connections to the local government and yeah. all, again all of these things about the land grab and the local government come down in like the last episode and a half like yeah. it's it's not this big overarching thing i wish i knew i wish they had said what their plan was for the land because if the plan is simply to knock down some buildings and build up some nice condos and like gentrify the neighborhood and make a lot of money i'd be like okay that's that's just like 2% milk evil you know, it's like it's evil, but it's like Diet commonplace. Evil, yeah. It's commonplace evil. Like the last couple of times I've seen that plot where like, oh, we're trying to buy up every building in the neighborhood. It was like in in Marvel's Daredevil, where it turns out that like we were trying to buy up the neighborhood so that this mysterious clan of ninjas can get at like the the skeleton of a dragon that is buried underneath oh Manhattan <laughs> so that they can use it to make dragon drugs is that what that was my point is it was like they had a real end game involved mm. it wasn't just there we want to build a, condos yeah. like uh, the last movie i saw it in was vampires versus the bronx and it turns out gentrification is the work of vampires that was they're they're trying to move they move into poor neighborhoods yeah. and they uh they buy up all of the land because they need places to hide the coffins that's a really good movie it's a really good movie <laughs> <I like that. laughs> um 
The, the, the kids watch Blade for research purposes. This is one of those shows where like individual episodes don't have like a distinct individual storyline enough for us to go through an episode by episode for it to make sense. But I think my mm. favorite episode of the Black Donnellys, the one episode where I was just like, I, this episode I'm really grooving on, was uh, basically after they managed to raise the money to uh, basically mean that they don't have to sell half the diner to Doki, mm. uh, Doki manages to bribe, cajole, work with uh, some of the people in like city planning to say that the building is not safe and should be condemned. And as a result, they'll lose the building anyway and Doki will get the land. Uh, problem is, this the building's fine. Uh, and they're told that, well, you know, it's, it's going to be condemned today. Uh, if you try to put in the paperwork, it would take like nine weeks to process anyway, so there's nothing you can do, you're fucked. And so they turn to the Black Donnellys, and the Donnellys are just like, so we have one day to cut through New York City bureaucracy. And they do. And that is an, is an act of heroism. That's, yeah, <laughs> that, that part right there. Where that's just that's like, their, their Ikiru episode. Yeah. We're gonna, we're, they, they kidnap a guy, and they have that guy explain how to get through the bureaucracy, like what forms to fill out, how to get to the front of the line. And then we got to get this guy here by noon, when normally he would take six weeks. And then he gets there. He takes one look at everything says, this is fine. And then he's like, okay, but this will take like another like you know nine weeks to, to get through the system. And they're like, okay, well, how do we get that done today? He's like, it's impossible. Okay, but how do we do it? Okay, get me a BMW. So they go, <laughs> so they go to a valet, like where people oh, they, they, just, just, they just put on some valet vests and wait by a building, and they, somebody just hands them their keys. Yeah. And they just drive off. Yeah, it's it's kind of an elegant solution. I kind of admire. So they give him the keys to the BMW, and he says, "Great." And then he rubber stamps the paper. And they're like, "That would have taken nine months." The guys, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it fucking works. And have you ever done anything with like the government or the IRS or local city planning? You know that like it, it's such it, a massive it, bureaucracy. It's just it it's, takes it's, so long. It's it's not designed to be efficient. Mm. It's designed to be sort of self perpetuating. It's not actually designed to be all that helpful most of the time. But if you know someone who knows someone, you can actually cut through it pretty cleanly. <laughs> So that episode I thought was actually really great. It's, it's, some, yeah, a little bit of cleverness there. It, it certainly gave me I something did, to wrap my head around. I did like, um, I, I, I always liked the this, the bits where they're actually not involved in anything criminal at all. Like the scenes with William Sandler, the art teacher. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Sean is, uh, begins this sort of romance with... Uh, the young woman who sold it sold them a jukebox for their bar. Yeah, she that's her that's her yeah. job. She's a jukebox salesperson yeah. to like various bars and establishments, which is a fun mm. gig if you can get it. Uh, and uh, there's there's this utterly obnoxious scene where she's playing like some credence for it's like, have you ever heard this credence song yeah. that's like licensed in every single movie? Mm. And Sean's like, no, I've never heard this song that everybody's heard. And well, here's here's something we could license for real cheap. Now, yeah. this is my elegant way of leading into the worst part of the show. Yeah, we uh, talked about this. <laughs> and I think this was uh, one of the many many cases where. Uh, a TV show or a movie will license uh, some pop music for use for broadcast, mm. but those licenses expire by the time it's uh, time for uh, home video or even for reruns. Yeah. Or, or, not, or even not expiring, it's just those are separate licenses and you might yeah, have to pay so more for them. So that, that was you can the show reasons, it on TV, yeah. but you can't put it on the DVD or on yeah. the streaming service. Uh, Charles Burnett's really brilliant film, Killer of Sheep, was unavailable for many years for that very reason. Yeah. There was um, a lot of music they couldn't license. Uh, the animated movie, uh, Heavy Metal. Heavy, like They yeah, never had home video release on that. Yeah. Uh, the, the MTV series, The State. It was an MTV show. 
videos. So of mm. course, they have access to this huge music library, which they didn't license for home video. So it wasn't yeah. on home video for many, many years. Uh, we wrote, uh, we, I think and, we also ran into this several times on our show, Birds of Prey. Yeah, Birds of Prey. Had a big hip hop song in like for their opening credits. And then on home video, they have a song with a completely different tone. Mm. And it is so generic. It's literally just a studio band. We've done research. We No one knows who did the song. <laughs> like no one knows who did the like song who, on the DVD. Who sang it? Who played it? What like what it's studio it was recorded? Just in. some generic track. And mm-hmm. so the Black Donnellys. Every once in a while, they'll have a famous song, but the majority of the pop music on the soundtrack is bland. It, it, it is really some of the worst musical choices that you could possibly yeah. have in a TV show. Uh, a because I don't know if there's something wrong with the mix. But they're always a little too loud or a little too quiet. Uh-huh. Uh, they they overwhelm the drama in the scene just because mm. of the way they they overtake all of the action and the mood is never right. It's like they, somebody yeah. dropped their iPod at the wrong yeah. moment and it started playing new metal during like a yeah. really scene that was supposed to be kind of like sweet and emotional. Music needed to go in this spot yeah. and we're not going to really put in a lot of effort because the show wasn't a hit. Uh, but we are putting it on DVD, so just someone put any music there. So the music never really seems like it was carefully selected mm. to match or even contrast see, the I, action in the in the episodes. I, I ended up uh, like I have Shazam on my phone, yeah, and uh, I ended up trying to Shazam some of uh, some of the bands in there, and there was just nothing. Yeah, these I, I, at, I, like at all. I'll bet I'll bet these are like generic tracks that the studio has. For when you need a little something on the radio and it's not worth getting any real music for mm. in, in, a, in a scene. Um, so, yeah, and I suspect the issues with the mix, and again, we didn't watch, I watched like the pilot, but I don't remember it in a lot of detail. Uh, but we didn't watch this like on network television when it originally aired, so I imagine which, it was different. Which, uh, also, we couldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> because this is one of those beautiful... Uh, DVD releases that has the, those magical words with episodes not aired. Yeah, that's uh, true. this only aired six episodes. Uh, the remaining seven were only available on DVD. There you go. Uh, but regardless, we didn't get to see these episodes, any of the episodes other than the pilot again, when they were on the air. So I couldn't tell you what the music and the soundtrack actually sounded like. But if I were to venture a guess, those issues with the mix that you're talking about were probably we had to remove a more popular or more expensive song. From lay, the, lay something over or something right. was already But we're there. not going to go through all the efforts to actually peel apart the sound effects track. Because hmm. I noticed there's like a, one episode where like uh, there's a van driving away and it's really intense and like some people are shooting at them and all of a sudden all the sound effects drop out. And then it didn't seem like it was a dramatic choice. It felt like the sound effects were supposed to be here, but we had to replace those with with the most generic music possible as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So just the entire thing is undercut. I want you to just imagine like any, pick a good movie. Think of a movie that has like really good musical choices. And the first thing that comes to mind, and I know this is a complicated issue to have a conversation with for you, but like it's Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, yeah. The music in Pulp Fiction is can't, very carefully chosen. Can't talk about Pulp Fiction. How about um, yeah. how about a Coen Brothers movie? <laughs> they, um, they do good soundtracks as well. Or, or John John Waters. John Waters. Um, um, I'm trying to think here. Uh, Link later. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a movie with like a really Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump has a very good soundtrack, like mm-hmm. all the hits from the '60s. Yeah. Okay. Now I want you to imagine that in all of those scenes in Forrest Gump, where like these iconic songs from the 1960s were playing, I want you to imagine you just take out that song mm-hmm. and put some song you have no emotional connection to, you've never heard before, that was doesn't have like an interesting hook, 
that doesn't have a catchy tune that doesn't have any peaks and valleys. It's all very like, eh. like just just a C. <laughs> it's just playing the the C note over and over again with some generic lyrics and just putting those over those same scenes. It's not going to have the same power. No, it's just not. There's a reason why there's actually like jobs on movies to find and place the right music, like to find music that we can afford, that we can mm. get the rights to, and actually put it together. So, can you imagine the Pulp Fiction opening credits if it were like, uh, like a Beach Boys song? Be different movie. Yeah. Well, it's kind of surfy. It's got Miserloo, but like, yeah. regardless. But like, yeah, can you imagine if it was it's ABBA? Like, yeah. ABBA would be a very different vibe, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'll, I'll execute every last one of you motherfuckers. You can dance. <laughs> you can dance. Well, again, there's there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of like sort of experimentation with this. I find on the internet, like um, uh, this is a cute example. It's not like an amazing example, but like uh, in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's a scene where the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and uh, the villainous uh, Baron Zemo, uh, who returns <laughs> from uh, Captain America: Civil War. Oh, uh, 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 no, 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 Daniel August Brühl. Deal. Daniel Brühl. Yeah, Daniel Brühl shows not up. Not August Deal. He's yeah, they have, they have to like different German actor. They have to break Daniel Brühl out of prison in um, order to help them, so, so he can help them like track down some some criminals. And honestly, he's great. He's better in in this show than he is in that movie. Like, I, he's a really good character in the show. But there's a scene where they have to like go to a nightclub, mm. and while they're waiting to talk to some like evil person like behind the scenes, they just have to mingle. So there's this one shot of Daniel Brühl as the villainous Baron Zemo. Just grooving out <laughs> to some music, <laughs> just hanging out. It's like, like it's like a it's like a five second clip, but you can see like online. There's like a whole Twitter account that's just dedicated to putting different music to that dance. Oh yeah, yeah. And you can see just how like, and it's it's a very simple exercise, and you can do it at home. You can do it. It's a good exercise where you can learn the power of music to do with a scene. Just take any scene and just put different music over it, mm. and just see how it affects the scene. It will make it absurd. It will make it funny, it will make it romantic, it will make it tragic. Mm. But like, yeah, just suck out the music from a scene, put other music over it to see what happens. And you'll realize just how much influence this has. So when you have a musical accompaniment that is so on, with, with so little effort put into it, it undermines a lot of scenes in this show that like probably could have been effective. But when you're watching them at home, and it's just like, I give no shits, and I wish you would turn this crap off on the radio. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, it's really, and we're mentioning it because it is incredibly distracting. Yeah, it's, it's not, not just like bad music choices; yeah. it's something that pulls you right out of the show time and time again. Yeah. I'd be surprised if the people on the show were happy with these music choices. I don't know that for a fact, mm-hmm. but uh, this feels like again, it's a fair critique because it's what we've got, but it also is a little unfair to blame the Black Donnellys for it. So like it's it's hard uh, it's, to watch, but yeah, I'm not going to blame the showrunners too much for it. Yeah, the, the, the showrunners were uh, not responsible for probably a lot of those new musical choices. I would be very clear, clearly late minute replacements, but because this is the only way we can see it, it this, is it does is, hurt. Yeah, this is this is what we got. Maybe at some point, yeah, if this somehow gains any kind of traction. Mm-hmm. Which it won't, but if it does, <laughs> this had the show. They, they might they might re-release it with the the proper music cues, and the show would be maybe slightly better. I think this show has a, a proper cult. Okay, we've had a lot of requests for the show over the years, um, and I know some people are very excited 
about the prospect of us doing it, and they keep saying, oh, I love the Black Donnellys, and you look at, like, clips on YouTube or whatever, and people are like, oh, I miss this show so much, I can't believe they canceled it. This show sometimes ends up on lists of the best canceled too soon shows oh, okay. ever made. Um, I personally don't quite see it. Um, it's it's I, I I've definitely seen worse well, this programs, is, but yeah. I also find this frustratingly generic, except for a couple of things that don't go far enough. Like, again, the whole unreliable narrator bit, that's the hook. That's the thing that makes this interesting, and it's not really that important to the show. So ultimately, all I'm left with is a reasonably competent but not spectacularly distinctive yeah, it's, crime saga. And it's called The Black Don- Donnellys, and it's about the four brothers. They're the four main characters, and everybody else is sort of support to them. I think it would have played a lot better if it had been more of a full ensemble. Yeah. And there were people in and out of the crime world who had reacted to each other in different ways. In other words, just put Kate Mulgrew in a more central role. She needed to be be like a little bit more of a mom to these characters and sort of like be, there needed to be like some sort of moral compass better than Tommy. Or you could have made her more of like a a Ma Barker kind of thing where she's actually like maybe encouraging them. That would have been fine too, but like it would have really, I think we needed that energy because this like young punk you know, getting drunk and hitting each other because we're 20 and we don't know what else to do energy. I'm sorry, I, I find it a little tiresome after a while and I needed more counterpoints to it. And unfortunately, the counterpoints that we have are Olivia Wilde, who's very good, but is she also interact very, with the main characters a lot. She doesn't interact with them a lot. Too often she is presented as the prize that they want to win and I just feel like she doesn't get enough opportunities to really shine. And then you have these like older gangster mafioso characters who are playing the same shtick we've seen a million times before, just like they're just in the system more. And all of a sudden, these rowdy kids are going to come on and shake things up. I feel like yeah, giving Kate Mulgrew more to do other than to tell the kids, you know, make sure you come in for dinner and stay in your room and stay away from my son. I don't trust you, lady who I do not approve of kind of vibe. Um, she had more to do. Yeah. She's Kate Mulgrew. Give her more to do for fuck's sake. And, and they, they brought her into the story at the end, but not in a way that she got to take charge of the story. In no. fact, she became a victim right at the end. Yeah, uh, it's really the, the, the big uh, cliffhanger at the end of the series is uh, she's shot. Uh, yeah. After all of this land grab yeah. stuff, they finally, everything comes to a head with Doki yeah. and uh, in a big sort of gun battle because we finally exploded in gun violence. Yeah. Uh, she gets shot and they're driving off in a van trying yeah. to leave town. Yeah, yeah. They get uh, they all grab and they'll jump yeah. in a turtle wagon basically and try to leave town because it's basically like mm-hmm. it's not worth it. We stirred the pot too much. We all got to get out of here. Doki killed our dad, which by the way is a thing that happened. So, uh, we, we he knows that we know we tr- we beat him up, but we didn't kill him, and now he's out for revenge, and we just need to get the fuck out of here. And so before they do, they're confronted by all these guys, and they start a firefight and it just kind of ends in the middle of it. It ends like, it ends like the devil inside. Like all of a sudden everything's really dangerous in a car and then credits. It doesn't feel like much of a cliffhanger. It doesn't definitely doesn't feel like a season cliffhanger. It feels like a next week cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a bit frustrating. There's a lot that's frustrating about this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can kind of understand uh, why this would get a following given the context if you saw it when it first came out, when sure. this kind of drama was a little bit more novel, then I could see getting really involved in it. But I feel like this one's been uh, outstripped by 
uh, all, all of the years since, you yeah. know, it's been 14 years since this, uh, this series aired. And, you know, in that 14 years, we've had a lot bigger, more ambitious stories that have worked a lot better than something like this. I think it's also fair to say that it's story of a world of crime and hedonism and sex and drugs and violence, uh, probably wasn't as easy. I think it might not, I think it might've been more difficult to really like tell this story in the confines of network television. Where this actually surprisingly violent. There are people getting their faces burned off with waffle irons and shit. <laughs> but like, it's still the sort of thing where like they do have very specific constrictions of what is possible, what they can show, what they can't show. And there may have been. I feel like there are certain shows, in particular, Game of Thrones. I think is sort of the 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 ultimate example is. Uh, but um, is the episode not working? Just throw in some sex. Is the episode not working? Decapitate somebody. Like Mur- murder a character. Yeah, like and again, I'm not I'm being a little cynical about this, but I think sometimes Game of Thrones did it effectively. And so I think sometimes Game of Thrones did it just because we needed something in this scene to get our interest back up again, because sometimes the episodes can be kind of slow. Raymond Chandler had a whole bit about, oh, is the scene boring? Just two, two guys with guns burst in. Yeah, and he did this the all solution. the time. He did this all the time. Yeah, just all the, once once you know that axiom, you notice yeah. a lot in his work. Yeah, and it's just basically sometimes the scene is boring, and then something exciting has to happen, and the excitement, like the the our ability to be like whoa, is limited in a story about sex and violence if you can't show the sex and violence. Mm. So I this doesn't ha- this I feel like some of the key tricks that were being used to spice up this kind of narrative series were kept from the makers of the black Donnelly's because it was on network TV and they had fewer options. Yeah. Uh, so would it have made it a better show? Not necessarily, but it might've made it a little bit more exciting to watch. And I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, also, I, I wish there had been a greater variety of character types. I feel yeah. like the, the Donnelly's while they have distinct personalities are a little too similar to one I, another like there there's yeah. not a they, they fight but all because it's just because they're all kind of equally angry in the same sort of way there's at least two of them i mixed up constantly i think it was yeah. like kevin and sean i like mixed up all the time yeah like just yeah. they're the same character to me uh yeah. and if you don't mention that they've that they're gambling i can't tell them apart you know we have the olivia wilde character but she doesn't sort of interact with the main characters at all to give any kind of counterpoint. Yeah. There's William Sadler, who's in one episode. Yeah. There's not enough of inter-character dynamics. We're so mm. deeply ensconced in this world yeah. that I'm longing for a little bit more visual variety. Well, and I think this might have been a reaction to The Sopranos, where... Uh, it's it's that's a mob story and it's uh, like all, from what I understand of the Sopranos they're just all in it like the yeah. entire oh, yeah. family yeah they're they're episode one they're already like deep into yeah like like yeah. the entire family is is involved yeah. with it's it's not about obviously. falling into organized crime it's just about living in it yeah, yeah. Um, so about you know a fam- an entire family that's living yeah. within organized crime we get to sort of explore that world. The problem is the the world of the Donnellys isn't that interesting a world, really. No, a lot they're, of they're the, kind of stumbling through a lot of this stuff. A lot of the characters kind of feel like grows. stock archetypes. Yeah, yeah. Um, which just you know, you, you can't rely on that for very long, and unfortunately, we just rely on it for the whole series. In the case of some characters, um, and that's very frustrating. Uh, so the stock archetypes are frustrating. There's a certain amount of um, cultural stereotyping. Uh, that we're seeing a lot of. Uh, there's a line early on uh, that uh, Joy Ice Cream has where he talks about how 
Um, everyone thinks that all the Irish do like to do is get drunk and punch a guy. And it's really aggravating to be reduced to that kind of cultural stereotype. It just makes you want to get drunk and punch a guy. And which is a cute joke. It's a cute yeah. joke, but it also is... Here's the deal. This show was, I think, created or co-created by Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis was the writer and director of the Best Picture winning Crash, which is a, I, I'll say it, a terrible motion picture. It is not a good film. No, and it's one of the most frustrating things about the film is that it attempts to have a conversation about the state of affairs of a race in America, or in particular Los Angeles. Uh, but what it ultimately does is it presents us with a series of stock, sometimes very offensive archetypes, and then has a conversation about how, oh, yeah, we, we you know, are you know reducing people to a stereotype is bad but then the movie also says that people fall into those stereotypes constantly mm. and i find Lamp, that that's lampshading it a bit isn't that, it? That, yeah. all that really is is basically like saying like we're doing these stereotypes but we're going to call attention to them so that makes it okay and ultimately very little in that movie ends up feeling like it means anything because all it really is is a justification for our preconceptions about all of these characters and I think that sucks. I think that's shitty storytelling. I think it's it's not an interesting theme. I actually think it's a really kind of un- unhelpful theme because what it ultimately argues is that people may complain about being reduced to racist stereotypes, but then all the characters fit those. That's shitty. I'm sorry. I think it's shitty writing. Uh, and I think there's that kind of bleeds into the Black Donnellys a bit, where you can have that line well, about if, how, if, like, uh, oh, it sucks to be, like, reduced to, like, this cultural stereotype of what Irish gangsters are, and then you just do all that shit as though now it's okay. I don't think it is. I think it's lazy. If they were addressing those stereotypes and it was a little bit more authentic, yeah. like, if they actually, if, if you said that this is inspired by actual local legends and actual, like, yeah. local criminals and the way people talked about them in the neighborhood, if it were more about the actual neighborhood and we got to see more characters talking about these Donnellys and we got yeah. to know a little bit more specific things about these particular characters and the way they carried out real crime in the real world yeah. uh, then we could have much more serious conversations about real world people dealing with uh, the anxiety of uh, bursting out of and unfortunately sometimes living like leaning into stereotypes yeah. uh, which is you know something every, something every group deals with uh, and uh, that would have been something a little bit more interesting that's something that they could have tackled with intelligence but mm. they don't do that they just have the stereotypes and like you said they have the stereotypes and then they just do them and that's yeah. that's not a fun story that's lazy no i think it sucks mm. honestly um and uh, quite a few of the cast members of this show uh some of them incidental some of them not like pablo schreiber shows up in this show um, uh some of them are from the tv series the wire which i believe you haven't mm. seen i've seen four episodes of the wire okay well the thing about the wire uh some people call it the best tv show ever made i have called it that mm. not sure if i still would but i think it's up there um, there's something to be said for The Wire, maybe less so for season five where it starts getting a little weird, but like there's an authenticity to it. Like the people did their research hmm. and it well, stars they, people from Baltimore. Yeah, and and they like, sh- they, then they shot it in Baltimore. Yeah, they right? shot it in yeah. Baltimore. They actually like, re- like they 
hired actors and non-professional actors like people who actually like grew up in baltimore and were part of organized crime in baltimore and have since like uh turned their lives around and now they're actually acting in the show playing similar characters very different characters um the show feels like it doesn't take place in bullshit tv universe the show feels like it is again sometimes the plot gets a little implausible but it feels like the everyday stuff in it is grounded Mm. and i think there's two things you can do you could either ground it which would be a great way to do it because then you really feel like you've explored something or you lean into the fact once again that you have an unreliable narrator and get weird Mm. and it feels like the show kind of wants to do both and Mm. ends up never doing either very well (laughs) homer you had a head (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i guess i did (laughs) um so the Black Donnellys, uh, the Black Donnellys, if it had lasted 100 episodes, uh, I'm going to call it Tommy would have killed Jimmy. Yeah. Tommy J- would have killed Jimmy yeah, towards that, the end of the series. They just, um, there's no way. It would have been like the end of season three or so. Yeah, or, or maybe the second to last episode or something like that. But oh. like that would have been the thing that dooms them all is that how, Jimmy dies. How long before Breaking Bad murdered somebody? <laughs> Actually pretty quick. I thought it was like at like three seasons, like he always flirted with the idea, but it wasn't until like three years in that he finally actually. Well, they had to like I'm trying to remember the I'm trying to remember the details. Like they had to dispose of a body. The idea was actually like at the originally the show was supposed to lead to um oh who's the actor who's the guy it's late I'm I'm blanking Mm. out it was Brian Cranston Brian Cranston thank you it was originally the idea was that Brian Cranston was supposed to like push through the ranks. Mm. of the criminal underworld really fast. And you can see, like, because the, the first season is only, like, a half season. Like, at the end of that season, he's already kind of a badass. Mm. And then they backtracked really, really fast. And they were able to do that because there was a writer's strike that cut it off. And they realized that, oh, this should take longer. <laughs> so they actually, like, he did something really badass, and then they kind of just don't talk about that very much. And then he kind of, like, regresses a little bit and then gradually becomes... The truly twisted evil mastermind. Okay. Um, but I do believe in season one there's there's some death. I can't remember how intentional it is. But anyway, it takes a bit. Um, uh, but regardless, maybe that's not the, the ideal example. But yeah, I had, had, hadn't seen the show, but uh, I understand that he didn't murder somebody for like a little while. And that's like he crossed that line like a little later into the show. I'm having but, trouble but remembering, honestly. Whether or not that's the case, that's... Maybe what they should have done with the Black Donnellys. Like, at the end of season three, he finally kills... Tommy finally kills Jimmy. Yeah. Kills one of his own brothers. And then that becomes this big uh, moment of drama within the family. But, like, in so doing, it would also, because of plot complications, sort of, like, propel him further up in the crime world. Yeah. Uh, And that, that would be sort of... The drama. That's yeah. predictable and drama, would, but at least that's well, kind of what would happen. It would be a good sort of mirroring, too, because this whole business started with him trying to protect his brothers from being killed. Mm. And now they're so deep in it, and the only way to protect his other brothers is to kill that brother himself. And he starts learning about, like, once you're in this level of organized crime, you have mm. to do things like that in order to keep power. And that becomes, like, this sort of self-sustaining, mm. shitty, evil system. Again, this would be another parallel with The Godfather, because yeah, that's well, exactly what like, happened in that movie. It, that, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's exactly what happened in that movie. Yeah, that's the more or less. The well, in The Godfather, he can't do it until their mom dies, and it's his whole yeah. thing. But anyway. Um, yeah, this episode, this show had gone on while I can kind of see where some of it is going. I'm sure they would have thrown in some, like, fun character actors who show up as bad guy of the season. 
like a new oh, like uh, Robert Davi. Robert Davi. Uh, where it's like, mm. have you, you have you seen Peaky Blinders? No, I fell off of it, but like it was pretty cool. Like season two, like all of a sudden, like uh, um, Tom um, Tom Hardy shows up. As like this weird, creepy, I think it was a butcher Who was also, it was like Bill the Butcher Basically, yeah. and he just shows up for like one season To just throw a monkey wrench into everything And be awesome and sexy And I'm like, yeah, more of that please I just want like more, like bring some interesting character actors in yeah. To just be larger than life figures That'd you know, be cool You know what they really needed? Like, they needed a Frank Gorshin as the Riddler <laughs> Like Complete with the outfit. Why the hell not? Yeah. Uh, they, they need like a a, a really weird supervillain. Need larger because than these, my people. That's what I'm. These, yeah. These main characters are are such like wet shirts. They're just sort of like baseline archetypes. Yeah. That they need like one wacky guy that they can play straight man to essentially. Yeah. Uh, just some not better than Doki. Doki was actually kind of a dangerous character. I mean, just yeah. somebody who's completely unpredictable. Well, I think that's what they were going at with Jimmy after a while when he starts like mm. grabbing a rocket launcher and trying to do crazy shit, and actually yeah. not very good at it. But no, you, you need the you need a, a Paul Kersey or Jason Statham in the Fast and Furious movies. The vigilante yeah. in town might have been an interesting yeah, thing to explore. That'd been kind of cool. But anyway, uh, was the Black Donnellys canceled too soon? Uh, no, I don't need to see more of this story. Okay. I'm, I'm not so involved in the lives of the Donnellys that I need to see where they're going from here. Yeah, I'm frustrated because it, it wasn't like. It's not. It's not like a particularly bad show. Like I, I, I've definitely like, I like. I wasn't offended by it. I was bored by it sometimes, but I wasn't like thinking to myself, "Oh, what a terrible series." Hmm. But I also was never thinking, "Oh, what a great series!" Either, and I can appreciate why this would be the kind of show that some people would really get into. Totally get it, hmm. uh, and I did factor that into my uh, thought process. But what it boils down to is, uh, no. No, no, I'm good. No, it's, uh, it's, Olivia Wilde got to be in house, and then yada 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 yada. Now smart. she's and now book smart. Yeah. <laughs> so like we get book smart out of this. So I'll take that. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Um, so, but that's that's hindsight is 2020. At the time, I'm like, again, I had to look at the ratings, but I'm looking at the show and going. Eh. <laughs> Olivia Wilde, yada yada. Who could forget the Lazarus effect? Oh wait, everybody. <laughs> everybody forgot that movie. It's not her fault. Come on. No, but it's a forgettable, it, yeah. it's a weird aberration. The guy who made Jiro yeah. Dreams of Sushi yeah. and uh, the the Mumblecore crowd and Olivia Wilde and Donald Glover are going to make this really generic demonic possession thriller. Well, it's like Frankenstein, but Frankenstein comes up with like this person dies. They use their technology to bring them back. Mm. It's Olivia Wilde, and she but she comes like back with a demon. Of her, yeah. yeah, which is like again, that's an uh, that's a pretty generic setup for a horror movie. And uh, you've got a pretty good cast there, and you do nothing with either yeah, of those things. Nothing. It's so, so bad. It's not a but we got book smart out of it. Yeah, the, the, That's the important thing. The, the Black Donnellys is not an interesting enough show to continue. Uh, the only times I thought it was bad was uh, when they had those really horrible music cues. And, and again, and it's I, hard to blame the show. I can I can excuse the horrible music cues because I know that yeah. wasn't the original intent. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's it for Cancel Too Soon this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, next time, we will be back with a show that I have been wanting to cover since we started this program. But it wasn't available for a really long time. Only a couple of episodes aired. Uh, I know they had shot the entire thing. Uh, but it wasn't on home video. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't widely I, I, I looked like I couldn't even find it on like bootlegs and then sure enough it just showed up on Tubi <laughs> just popped in there <laughs> thanks Tubi for sneezing out every last little bit of pop ephemera yeah. so we've got uh, uh, coming up a short lived 
seven episode television series from one of the producers of Firefly, not that one. Uh, and it's starring such folks as Nathan Fillion, Emma Stone, Melanie Linsky, Charles Martin Smith, Amy Acker. <laughs> like, it's a, actually a pretty damn good cast. Uh, and it is a cross country race thriller called Drive. Uh, and not, I not to, not to be confused, unfortunately, with Blood Drive, no, which is also a cross country race. No, no, it's, and I, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's nowhere near as crazy as Blood Drive, but what is? No, nothing is as crazy yeah, as that's, Blood Drive. That's a high bar. Blood, blood Drive is is pretty bloody yeah. unique. This, this Drive is uh, imagine the Cannonball Run if the people running the race killed you if you came in last. Like that's it. Perfect. Like, so you got. Big characters showing up, you get like a big prize at the end. A couple of people don't even want to be there, but like their wives have been kidnapped or whatever. And uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, I saw the first two episodes and then they didn't air anymore, even though there were only seven of them. So now I get to finally see how this damn thing ends, and I'm very, very excited. So it's on Tubi. We're going to be talking about that next time on Cancel Too Soon. Thank you everybody for listening. Very special thank you in particular to our patrons. Uh, without our patrons, and, uh, our show would not exist. Also, the uh, the Black Donnellys was a donation from one of our patrons. Yes, I uh, want to give a special thank you for that. Um, so special thanks to the patron who donated, who I think preferred to remain anonymous. That's true. Um, but uh, we do have some more donations. We know we're... Hmm. we're <laughs> you have no it. idea how backlogged we are on Cancel Too Soon. There's no shortage of these things. Hmm. We have a giant library. Uh, but a very special thank you to people who donate. Um, and we will get to your shows eventually. Uh, and uh, they're all they're all in the pipeline. Uh, but uh, yeah, but also a special thank you to our patrons, without whom these shows would not exist. We just we, we wouldn't be here without you. So I just want to make sure you have your moment. Um, and uh, if you want to join up in our Patreon, if you uh, if you have the means, uh, head on over to Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. We have a lot of exclusive shows for you, uh, including shows about Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Academy Awards. We do commentary tracks. We have a lot of stuff over there. Huge backlogs of stuff. Uh, so uh, you can check that out over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network if you want to talk about the Black Donnellys or anything else that might uh, interest you for us to uh, discuss you're more than welcome to write us an email our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net we might read and respond to one of your emails on an upcoming episode of our podcast We've Got Mail you're also welcome to follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold and of course head on over to etsy.com and look for Salt Cat Soap all one word. Look for a wonderful image of Luca with soap, and you will find designer soaps designed by mostly my wife and partner, M. Lapis de Silva, a few designed by myself uh, over there. And uh, we just dropped a whole bunch of new designs a, uh, a set of bath salts, hand lotions. There's a lot of exciting stuff out there. Uh, it's probably too late for Mother's Day, but. Uh, Eh, just tell your mom you got lost in the mail and it showed up a couple of days late. Also, there's also plenty of reasons to have soap because it's soap. We all need soap. Thank you, soap, for being soap. And it's really late and I'm getting kind of loopy. So uh, thank you to Whitney. You're quite welcome. Because he's great. Any oh. <laughs> of the best. Oh, pish. We don't talk about I've, him. I've he's got, the, he's amazing. Fooled. I love him so much. I, I, I wouldn't do all these shows with him if he wasn't the best. Um, so thank you, everybody. Thank you, Whitney. And uh, that's a wrap. We'll see you next season of Drive, specifically. Mm-hmm.